You're listening to the Getting Social Podcast, a keep it real type podcast where we discuss entrepreneurship, marketing, and all kinds of social topics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Getting Social Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Palacard, and this is episode number 17. Today, I have the privilege and the thrill of having Enrica Manes on the show. From losing close to 100 family members to the Holocaust to dedicating her life to helping developing countries achieve autonomy, Enrica shares her amazing journey with us. She has been working with developing and emerging economy countries for the past 30 years in Africa, Asia, Eastern and Central Europe, the Middle East and South America. Haiti is her 25th country and likely her last. As the founder of EcoWorks International, she has devoted the last 11 years of her life developing a program in Haiti which focuses on establishing agricultural cooperatives owned and governed by farmers for farmers. The co-ops are economic development engines and become a legacy farmers can leave to their children and grandchildren, therefore building self-reliance for those regions to further expand into greater territories. After all these years, she is still as passionate about her work as when she started. In 2016, she received the Tekken Olam Award after her work in my beloved Haiti. Enrica has been an inspiration to me, a mentor, and I'm lucky to also call her my friend. I hope you find value in her message, just like I do on our weekly calls. Without further ado, it's time to get social. All right. So, uh, Enrica, once again, thank you for accepting my offer to be a part of the Getting Social podcast. And I want to start by uh, the beginning so we can put everything in perspective. And uh, I want to go way back, even before you were born, share with us what your, your family went through way back in the, the 40s and how you think it helped shape who you are today. In essence, just take us through your journey. First of all, thank you for having me. This is a great pleasure. I was born in Poland after the war, of course, and we immigrated to France when I was seven years old. Although that is a young age, I still remember vividly my life in Poland. And when I think about it, then, and then my life in France, where I grew up, I see my first childhood in Poland as a black and white movie where everything exists in a dreary gray. And then my life in France, where everything turns into vivid Kodachrome colors and a brilliant luminosity. But I have to say, my life outside of my home was really uh, amazing. Inside my home, even in Paris, there was a pervasive heaviness in our everyday life. And that's because the war was part of my upbringing. Uh, my mother and father were in concentration camps. My entire family perished there, except for my mother, my father, and my father's three nephews. We lost about 100 members of our family, and that is a very heavy load to carry by the survivors and their children. My father died when I was six months old, so I don't remember him, but my mother survived until my son was almost one-year-old, and it made me very happy that she was able to spend some time with him. She strongly felt that she survived to tell the story of this brutal genocide relentlessly, and with as much detail as possible to keep alive those whose voices were forever silenced. And one result of that is that I grew up with a heavy existential question. And that is, how can one human being do such profound and immeasurable harm to another human being? 
And that question greatly influenced my worldview, uh, shaped my character, and heightened my sense of needing to lead a meaningful life. What I did not quite expect is that it would also make me change the course of my professional life. So after 10 years in the art world as an art historian, museum curator, and gallery owner, I made a drastic change and became a specialist in what is called international development. That means working with developing and economic, economic emerging countries. So for the past 30 years, I have been doing just that, working primarily in developing countries around the world. And this is how today I find myself working in Haiti, which is my 25th country, mm. and I think the last one. So going back to my existential question, over the years, I realized that it is not possible to ever answer it fully. But what is possible what is actually vital, at least for me, is to act and do something constructive to counteract the harm that others have done. This is what drives my work and my life to this day. Primarily, my work focuses on communities living in poverty and identifying their strengths and uh, build upon them. Well, um, I have questions. I want to ask about, if I may, about your dad. You said he passed when you were six months old, and it, was that a result of the genocide? But that was the result of being in Auschwitz, you know, for, mm -hmm. for years. And then, unfortunately, after the war, after all he and my mother went through, my mother was in a different concentration camp. They went to the city where my father was from to see who survived. And that name of the city is Kielce. And Kielce is infamous because it's one place where after the war there was a pogrom against the Jews who survived the war and my father and my mother were there and so my father was deeply oh, impacted by that and uh, you know in addition to realizing that he lost all his families except for his three nephews and I think that really uh, impacted his health. I can't even imagine that those experiences and also your upbringing, you know, going to France and everything. And but does that play a role into what your mission is uh, today and what you want to accomplish? Uh, yes, because first of all, when we lived in Poland, you know, we, we lived in a one room apartment and we had very little. Mm -hmm. We lived really in poverty. And then when we came to France, we came as refugees. And then not only we came as refugees, but the association that was helping us put my parents in a place and where they did not accept children. So I was put in a children's home. So imagine coming as refugees, not knowing the language, not knowing the culture, and then being separated from your parents. That was quite traumatic. So today when I do the work that I do and that I have been doing for the last 30 years, you know, you can study poverty and I certainly do. You can study the issue of refugees and returning refugees and all of these good things. And this is sort of intellectual work and practical programs. But in my heart, I feel great affinity because I know to some degree what people are going through. I understand what it is to be a refugee. I understand what it is to live in poverty and so on. 
So it's uh, it's a really it makes me very intimate with the people that I work with. Wow, it's amazing to hear. You can tell for sure that that's something that's uh, dear to you. You know, all these different experiences that you've had throughout your life and uh, leading to what your mission is today. How do you see the world and the pros, the cons? Well, it's undeniable that COVID-19 ruins our lives, whether it's in the United States or in the rest of the world, and certainly Haiti. We in the U.S., I think, have been shockingly unprepared. Uh, many lives have been lost that I'm sure have, could have been saved. Our lives have been completely upended, and some changes, I think, are profound and will stay with us uh, for the foreseeable future. More than ever, we understand how important leadership is, especially in the case of a pandemic, and how it has been lacking. And this is shocking to me for the United States. I mean, this is the last thing I expected to find here. We also understand that with utmost clarity that our democracy is much more vulnerable than what we knew, which is not something that has been fully formed and set, which is what I think many of us believe. Uh, we learned that we have to work at it every day. I think we must restore civics and geography in our classrooms huh. and have a constant conversation with our children about what it means to be a citizen, what is the function of our government, and what are our responsibilities to each other and to the world. Because we're not, you know, we're not an island. We live among the whole world. And there is no them and us. I think there's only us, no matter where you look. I think from what I hear from people who went to public schools in the United States 50 years ago or so, that our public education quality has gone terribly down and that there are dire consequences now, especially with the advent of social media. We see that so many people are really isolated and, and have very poor education and don't have a sense about really what, it, what their choices are and what it, what's going on around the world. And I think what worries me terribly is the trend of resurging autocratic, despotic, and fascistic tendencies that bring with them the false nostalgia of the good old times. I strongly believe that the good old times are a product of a faulty memory. Promoting the past is now, for me, a meme for racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, division, and corruption. We see it here, we see it in Poland, in Hungary, and in many other countries. And I think that is really dangerous. And especially for me coming from Europe and knowing what happened to my parents, knowing what happened in European history. So I also think that there are people who are genuinely afraid of the future as they see it manifested in it by globalization and the rapid technological advances. And we must pay attention to them and put in place programs that will help them adjust and find ways to be part of the change rather than feeling left behind. I think it brings fear to, the, to them and to their families. And I think we really must address this if we want to have 
a peaceful future here in, in the United States. Despite all that I just mentioned, I am actually very optimistic and excited. Wow. Um, I think, yes, I think technology has more positive than negative. Nice. But we must learn how to control it, which is not simple and it's becoming increasingly more complex. And we have to use it responsibly. I have a huge trust in our younger generation. Hmm. They are driving a world movement that is bold, just, and way, way overdue. Whether it, I look at the high school students, like those who survived the massacre at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School here in Florida, mm -hmm. or the young people are sounding the alarm on climate change, or the young generation driving the Black Lives Matter movement and telling us enough is enough. I must also credit courageous journalists uh, that have unveiled and uh, exposed the Catholic Church's um, pedophilia that has been going on for generations, writing continuously about men in power abusing professional women, like the Me Too movement that has come out of it, and uh, citizens who capture videos killing our Black sons and daughters by the police. And I think uh, that hopefully will change this for a better and forever. So I am, yeah, I am immensely proud of them and uh, seeing it all coming together is truly awesome for me, truly awesome. You are really painting like uh, the entire picture. And I like the fact that, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of cons, but also a lot of pros. You have to focus on the, the positive and see that the next generation is here for for a reason and um they're gonna take care of business so let's just hope that's what's gonna happen i think we have to support them i, I think that's really really important you cannot just leave it to them i think we have to support them in everything that they want to do i also want to add something and that is that where i think we still have a long way to go is in terms of poverty and neglect and that's exactly the space where i work and i think here we are just starting to raise our voices about what we did and continue to do wrong, that is wrong, and how we perpetuate inequalities. Maybe not always intentionally, but we certainly do that. We are not nowhere near where we need to be and certainly nowhere near uh, a movement, a powerful movement like that for climate change or for you know, equality for every race uh -huh. uh, within our community. You know, maybe because poverty is complex, made of numerous uh, interrelated issues and huge, huge challenges. A major lesson to repeat time and again is that poverty is man-made. I think this is very important to stress. We make poverty, and if we make it, we can undo it. And I think that that is something very important to, to understand. I also think that, you know, I was really, I was really, I don't want to say the word impressed. I was really touched, profoundly touched when I went to Berlin two years ago. And when you go to, when you walk around Berlin, everywhere you look, whether it is the sidewalks, whether it is the buildings, everywhere you see little plaques that say the name of the Jewish family that lived here and the date that they were sent out to concentration camps and they die. And 
you know, as, as a Jewish person, and now you know my background, it, it, it was so profoundly moving for me that there is a nation that has come to terms with its past. And I believe very strongly that this is what has set them free. And this is why they are such a successful economy uh, and society in, in, in Europe. And I think that we have here, you know, I'm an American now, so I sort of have adopted the good and the bad and the ugly, right? And so I think we in the United States have to come to terms and confront the whole issue of slavery. And slavery, again, you know, violence against women and, and so on, but particularly slavery. I think we have to embrace it, you know, and take our responsibility. This is what happened, this is what we did. And how do we move forward? And I think that unless we do that, we will never be free here in the United States. That is so true. I did not know that about Germany, about um, Berlin, that's for sure. And that that speaks volumes. It's um, and that's a great it's a great way to frame this also in regards to the United States because it seems like they don't want to let go, you know, of, of that part of uh, their history as if you know it, they embrace it i don't know uh to me you know i'm i'm from haiti so part of our history you know played a role in united states history but i will let the, the historians really <laughs> share the details but i want to ask you about your specific vision about haiti or for haiti i should say we speak about that quite often and especially in uh agriculture side of things mm -hmm. and um with eco works i know you've been doing a lot of great work in haiti and uh, i want to hear about you know not only the your vision for haiti and also the work that you've been doing and and uh what you see uh coming next for the future so first of all i have to say that our work is basically based on three things that is the farmers autonomy self-sufficiency and sustainability. Mm -hmm. I think that any foreign organization working anywhere, but this is particularly true in DT, is that we have to concentrate on how to enable the people we work with to achieve what we, and particularly what they think are their, their dreams, uh, their, their hopes, and etc. Mm -hmm. Not to have a sense of doing something there, but actually to be enablers rather than doers. That doesn't mean that we don't do things, on the contrary, but I think it's important to keep that in mind, that we, our success is only possible if the people that we work with succeed. We don't really have successes of our own. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I started my my career, as I said, 30 years ago, working for a Jewish organization called the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, JDC. And, and that organization is 115 years old, and it has a generous annual budget of $400 million. Mm. Its mission is actually to provide programmatic and financial support to any Jewish community around the world in any fashion the community may need. It's a very sophisticated organization. It actually um, has think tanks because they always want to be at the cutting edge of social programs and so on and so forth. 
But there's also inside that organization, there was at least when I was working there, a division that creates and delivers programs for non-Jewish communities, but in the name of the Jewish community. Uh, and this is to fulfill a basic tenet of Judaism, which is called Tikkun Olam, and uh, it means healing of the world. But really what it means is, what did each one of us do to make this world better than when we were born and we found it, right? So I, I was very fortunate then to work under a brilliant man whose name is Ari Cooperstock, who became my mentor. That was my first mentor in my entire life. And we, we, we worked on long-term program, but also in responses to disasters and also to wars and to genocide. Five years after uh, we worked together, unfortunately, Ari died of a heart attack. And at that time, I took over his position. So to this day, I must say, I apply many of his precepts and approaches. And one of these, the things that he taught me was that we needed to give everything that we have to the people we work with and not to own anything, but to actually lead the program to the people we work so they become the owners uh, and decision makers of this program. So that was a very, very important lesson. And the other things I think I want to mention is two books that were really uh, seminal for me. One is Amartya Sen's Development as Freedom, and I think that was published in 1999. And then another book is by Hernando de Soto, which is called The Mystery of Capital. And what I loved about those books is that they actually talk about the structure uh, of poverty and the, and the systemic issues that underlie poverty. And I think that's really what we have to concentrate, whether we are a big organization, a small organization, whether we're in, in government, etc. So those are sort of my, my pillars on which I uh, sit and, and, uh, and rely on. But January 1st, on, in 2009, I established EcoWorks International, uh, which is a non-for-profit, and to specifically work in Haiti. And while well, Haiti, as you know, better than anyone, is uh, actually was born out of a unique victory, a historical victory, by people of African descent who rebelled against being enslaved. And so it, I feel it's a country of immense potential, but whose people have been living in turmoil ever since its inception in 1804. And I think, I would say that 50%, if, if I were to, to sort of give percentages, 50% is the fault of the Haitians, uh, you know, the governments and, and et cetera. But 50%, if not more actually, is the fault of the foreign community. And, and particularly France and, and the United States. You know, we in the United States are the largest funders, donors in Haiti, but we have made enormous mistakes there and mistakes that really are profound. And except for one, one case where President Bill Clinton publicly acknowledged and apologized for being part of the destruction of the rice production in Haiti, not many people have uh, come to, you know, actually admit that our policies are really very destructive. And to this day, you know, we 
We actually flood the market with, with food and with buses of imports there, and that kills the, the local producers. And so I want to also talk about something that is imminent right now, which is uh, a food shortage. So every three years or so, Haiti experiences food shortages. So, you know, hunger and for a small, tiny minority also even panic. And one of the things that we do, because we, we, you know, we feel uh, compassion when people talk about hunger and, and, uh, and famine, what we do is we want to help and we want to help immediately. So what happens is we send food packages and we send airplanes full of food cargo and we do distribute the food, et cetera, et cetera. But this actually uh, destroys the local farmers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that is something that we have to correct and we have to stop doing. I'm not saying that we should not send food when there's an emergency. What I am saying is that we should not actually send food unless there's a long-term, 10-year, 20-year-long, holistic, comprehensive agricultural development program. So that next time when there is hunger and famine, we actually source the food in Haiti and not in the U.S., which is what happens when we send packages. So that to me is, you know, something that I live right now in fear because I know this is coming and I know that the food and cargoes and packages are going to start arriving. And I don't know what's going to happen to the farmers we work with because, you know, this is really completely destructive to them. And we also never know when to, when to stop. When there's an emergency, an emergency should be three to six weeks, with some, you know, with some uh, uh, exceptions. But I don't think it should go beyond that. And so, and then really look at what we have done and then see how we can help the farmers, you know, overcome this crisis. So in terms of what we do, so our mission is to enable Haitian farmers to cultivate an abundant food supply, to feed Haiti, restore ecosystems, and advance social justice. And so I think that's, that's what we try to, to do and to, to live by it. We work right now, we have been working only in one region, and that's the region of the Lake Azuei, because we want to work in depth rather than sort of spread ourselves thin. And right now we work in a, a area called Marozo, which is at 6,000 feet. It's a uh, subsection of Gantier, and it has about 30 to 40 small villages and uh, localities. It is an area that has no water except rainwater. It has no sewage, no power, and no health care. So it's a community that is quite isolated. The road there is very hard to go through, but we've been working with them for almost two years. Now, one of the things that we believe in is in agricultural cooperatives. Why? Because Haitian farmers want to remain independent producers. And that is something that, that we have taken to heart. And an agricultural cooperative actually enables them to do that, to remain independent producers, even though they have a tiny plots of land. But it also gives them a possibility to aggregate their production and to trans transition to a better market. So instead of selling food on the street market in, in Port-au-Prince, they can now attract wholesale markets, hotels, restaurants, etc. 
So that's one thing. And I have to say that they never heard of an agricultural cooperative. And now as of September last year, September 2019, they own one. So we're very proud of them. And uh, we continue to work with them because they not only need to own it, they also need to manage it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're working right now. We also just completed a goat project. We brought in goats into Navajo. And we have a program just to show you how we work is that the farmers have to decide how much they're going to pay for each goat. So, for example, they decided to pay 20% of the price. So that came to $16 because they actually didn't, you know, it was an old price, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't matter. They paid $16 US dollars for, for the goats. We have trained them uh, how to take care of the goats. Uh, they signed that contract. Because in addition to paying the $16, they also have to give the, uh, give the first kid, the first baby goat, to another family who then is also obligated to pay 20% and to give their kid to another family. Hmm. So this way we will, you know, the herd, the regional herd will grow exponentially. And the other thing we're looking at is, so how to improve their productivity and production, how to bring the essential services, water, sewage and a certain power Mm -hmm. they are very lucky because they have a public school which as you know is very rare in Haiti, which is in a new building and sorry about this um and so we have a very comprehensive program this is exactly what i was talking about for the whole region but particularly now for uh and then we will be opening four other cooperatives in the region because we want to create a agricultural production hub and see if we can actually arrive at a tipping point where the economic regional progress will be achieved. So that's, you know, in a nutshell what we do, but also included in what we do are equality for women, uh, retention of the younger people. We, We are thinking, we are hoping to open an agricultural school. So there's just a lot of pieces to this program to make it comprehensive for why because poverty is actually is a situation uh, is a situation in which one group of people create that situation and another group of people is forced to live in it and if one understands that one understands the complexity of the situation of the context and also the complexity of poverty itself and see that the program that we have put together corresponds at its complexity by being holistic and comprehensive. Wow. It's, 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 uh, no, I mean, I could listen to this over and over again because it's so informative. I'm learning a lot of things and I'm sure, you know, the audience will too. So you said in 2009, you started with EcoWorks International and you work exclusively in Haiti now, but has it always been this way since 2009? You've been working exclusively in Haiti? Yes, only only in Haiti. Uh, of course, you remember that we, uh, we have the January 2010 earthquake. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were very fortunate not to have uh, any direct damages, but we did realize that we sit right on the helpline, which mm-hmm. is not comfortable with this, uh, you know, uh, discovery. But actually, we went to work at the Vietnam Nurse Hospital mm-hmm. to help there. Uh, and we stayed there until the last patient left. And then we also did other projects that had to do with the earthquake. We brought food to certain orphanages. And uh, we also worked, you know, the 
Prince Charles Foundation uh, was uh, funding a uh, reconstruction plan that was done by the DBZ firm and uh, the, obviously the Haitian government. So we were the liaison between the three. So we did quite a few things. And then when we came back, we had a lot of internal refugees inside uh, Dantier uh, who came from Port-au-Prince, people who have lost everything. So we did something different. We didn't open a street camp. What we did is because we already knew so many villages, we negotiated with the villages to incorporate the refugees inside the villages. And in return, we did something, you know, for the for the villages or infrastructure, a little bridge, latrines, and so on and so forth. That would stay after the refugees left. So it worked actually quite well. And then since after that, when we were able to come back and, and resume what we were doing, yes, we have been working in the same area. But in 2019, we started a regional development plan, which is called Talia Farms. And everything that we do in Marozo, we will repeat five times throughout the region. And so, as I said before, we hope to actually create an uh, agricultural production hub uh, to really make a difference in the local economy. What you do is so precise, and and I and I love that. And and actually, that's part of my next question. If if, for example, the operation is running at full capacity and a maximum optimization, let's say twenty years from now, how do you see, let's say, an area of, like Maewozo developing, and how do you see this, let's say, spreading from area to area, from village to village, city to city? and eventually in X amount of years to have this entire thing, you know, reversed and, and going in the right direction? Well, the whole idea is to give everything that we know to the community. So, you know, we are transferring knowledge, know-how, resources, experiences, everything to empower them to do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. We're here, we support them. They know we, we are very committed, we're, we're here for the long term, but in the end, our success is going to be when we can leave. And, you know, so when we become obsolete in a way. Hmm. You know, I'm hoping that by then, we will have well-trained, modernized farmers, and that they and the younger generation will be able to continue this work and it will be for them to see how they imagine their own future. Uh, and this is what we try to, you know, give them courage, give them confidence in themselves, understand that no one is going to come and save them, uh, that they are the solution, nobody else. And I think that with time, and we can see progress already, you know, they, they are taking reins of, of their their future in a way you know they are the ones who open the cooperative of course we're there we're helping them we are helping them to get it uh, registered officially but they they're making decisions they understand very quickly what needs to be done we are going to be bringing technologies that are going to be making their lives uh, much better we're going to be able to make decisions based not only on observation but also on data we're going to be uh, working together to diversify the crops. So we're going to be starting coffee and cacao. They are very high up, so this is perfect for, for that. So we're going to be starting uh, the coffee and cacao production. But we're going to be starting it with technology, with asserting 
the DNA uh, purity of the seeds that we're going to be planting and also preparing them to deal with certain diseases that uh, can destroy coffee plants. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that we can do to enable them to do even more. If they're able to, you know, do it themselves, and uh, like you said, nobody's gonna come and save them, and they can have they're gonna have to fight for themselves and and just do it, and then that spreads, you know. So I I, I said that at one point I think last year that at some point I'm gonna have to go over there and just you know and and and, and take a look at what what you guys are doing, the amazing work you guys are doing, and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for dedicating you know the past 11 years to my my home com home country of haiti and uh a lot of people that are from haiti you know including myself i haven't done as much i want to thank you because you have been so important in, in what we do you assure our presence on social media without you we could not have done that and that's very important today to do it and so and you have you know you have been a, a very dependable and, and wonderful professional and now you are a friend so um, thank you for that the win-win is on our side <laughs> that's for sure that's for sure and I, I appreciate that i appreciate you and uh i want to thank you for coming here once again wonderful thank you so much it's been a pleasure and an honor all right enrica have a good night and thanks again thank you bye-bye thank you for listening to the getting social podcast if you've made it that far it means you probably liked it in that case, leave us a review, subscribe, and please share it with a friend.